Tonight's Bible reading comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is known at work, who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who was rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Hello, my name is Ben. One thing you need to know about me is that I love to talk to people and I love to make other people talk to other people. So what I want you to do is I want you to turn to the person next to you or someone around you and I want you to say what you got your mum for Mother's Day. And if you did not get your mum anything for Mother's Day, I want you to at least say what you have gotten your mum in the past Mother's Day. And if you're a mum, say what you got for Mother's Day. So please, talk to each other. Alrighty, it sounds like you guys are kind of dying down a little bit, so fantastic. See, I just love it. Oh, am I right? Yeah, I love it when people are talking to each other, and I reckon you guys should keep talking to each other after the service, but now it's my turn to talk. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. I asked my mum earlier this week what the best Mother's Day gift she's ever gotten was, and what the worst Mother's Day gift she ever got was. And she couldn't actually think of the best one, unfortunately. I mean, obviously, the best gift she's ever gotten is me, but she could, in fact, think of the worst Mother's Day, she's, Mother's Day gift she's ever gotten. And thankfully, it wasn't from me as well. In fact, this present was from our cat, Georgie. <laughs> so I'll set the scene for you. It was Mother's Day, our grandparents were coming over. Now, my uncle and auntie were coming over, so were our cousins, and they were coming over to our house to have lunch. Usually we have lunch at our grandparents' place, but for some reason they were coming over to our place, so the place had to look good. It had to look clean, it had to look spick and span, and I'm sure, knowing my mum, it definitely did. And so I was, I was really young, so I, don't, I can't really remember it, to be honest. But minutes before everyone had arrived, my cat was like, you know what, I love my mum so much, it's Mother's Day, I'm going to go get a present. And so she went outside, got the present, came inside and left it in the hallway of our house. Again, this is minutes before everyone arrived. My mum comes into the hallway and she sees the present that my cat has left for her. It is a chewed up, spit out, kind of thrown up, dead bird. Yeah, no, so not a great present, but look, it was out of the love of my cat's heart, I'm sure, and she might have also wanted to just kill the bird outside, I'm not sure. But mum of course, was like, oh my goodness, there's a dead bird in our house. And I think Dad came in like a great guy that he is. He came in, cleaned it up, and it was gone before our relatives came. So can I get a, get a clap for my dad? Good on him. Good on him. Good. <laughs> it's fantastic. And I also wanted to tell you about one of the greatest gifts that I've ever received, because it's, it's a gift-giving day. And so we've got to talk about this. Why not? One of the greatest gifts I've ever received, I actually got for Christmas last year. Well, actually, probably a few weeks before Christmas. And this was fantastic. It was amazing because it was really, really unexpected. My parents bought me a whole drum kit. Thank you. Yeah, right? Like, like yeah, it's insane. Like, 
probably really expensive. I didn't really ask them how much it was. It was like the whole, the whole shabam, everything, like cymbals, drums, everything. I won't go into the technicalities of it. But it was really, really incredible. And I feel like most people, when they get an amazing gift, they go, oh my goodness, I love you so much. You're the best. That's the best. You're, this is fantastic. But uh, I actually have this thing that I do whenever someone gets me a really good gift is that I go the complete opposite way. And so instead, whenever I get a good gift, I go, no, you shouldn't have done this. I don't deserve this. Why did you do this? This is too much money. I don't deserve this. Why did you get me for this? But what I'm trying to get at is that this gift I got, it felt like I didn't deserve it. I probably didn't, to be honest. It was an amazing gift. And my parents got it for me because they know that I like to drum. They know that it's something that I really enjoy doing. And they also know that I'm not fantastic at it, but I'm okay at it. And so they really wanted me to grow in those skills. And tonight we're going to talk about something that a gift that God gives us. And I'll give you a spoiler. That gift that God gives us is grace. And just like that drum kit, it's unexpected. It's amazing. It's out of God's love for us. And it's undeserved. So this passage is actually really incredible. I really, really love this passage. I've had the privilege of getting to read over it and over it the last few weeks and last few months. I want to encourage you guys to continue doing that after tonight. But before we get into it, I do want to give you some context for where Paul is at while he's writing this. So just after where Trav left us last week, and just before this passage we read tonight, there's about eight or nine verses. And in that eight or nine verses, Paul is talking to the people in Ephesus, and he says, I am praying for you that you will be able to know the hope that you have in Jesus. And then he goes on, he starts to make an argument for why they should have hope in Jesus. The people in Ephesus at the time, they're undergoing persecution. They're a minority in the society. They're a new kind of religion. It's only about 60 AD. And so really, they're going under persecution because people don't really like them because they're going against what everyone else says to do. And so what Paul does is he uses this letter to tell them about the power of God so that they can put their hope in him. And so in the verses before what we've just read, Paul makes the first point of his argument about the power of God. He talks about the power of God as seen in Jesus. He talks about how Jesus was raised from the dead, was brought back to life, and then was seated in the heavenly realms with God. And so when he does that, he, he talks about the power of God, and that's also another great passage, so look at that. But then he turns into the, what we've just read now to talk about the power of God as seen in us. And so while I've been reading this passage, I think there's some really key points that come out. There's the idea of how God brings us from death to life. There's the idea of how God has given this, us this gift of grace. But what's interesting about this passage is that the focus is actually still on God. This is actually really, really fascinating to me, so hopefully I can make it fascinating for you guys too. But this passage is actually still about God. And there's evidence is there. In verse 4, it's talking about God's great love for us. It's talking about God, who is rich in mercy. It's talking about how God has raised us up with Christ. It's talking about the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness. For it is by grace you have been saved. It is the gift of God. For we are God's handiwork, which God prepared in advance for us to do. See, this passage is actually all about God, and he's continuing this argument. This is point two in his argument about the power of God. But what's also really fascinating is that while this is about God, this passage tells us a heck of a lot about ourselves. My hope for tonight is that you'll be able to grasp an understanding of the power of God and you'll also be able to know the love that he has for you. So before we actually really get into it, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this love that you've given us. Thank you for the words we've already read, that it is by grace that we have been saved. 
Lord, I thank you for the freedom that we have to meet here tonight, to sit under your word and to rejoice in the hope that we have because of Jesus. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to us tonight, whether it's through the words you've given me through the week, whether it's through the words Paul wrote down almost 2,000 years ago, whether it's anything else, Lord, I just pray that you would speak and that you would be at work tonight. Amen. If you're a note taker, I want you to write up the top of your page, the power of a big butt. I wasn't sure if I was allowed to say that, so I did it anyway. I'll explain in a bit why I want you to write that up the top, but I do also want to say that this is such an incredible passage, and really, I've realized the only way to do it justice is to go through it verse by verse by verse, and so if you have your Bibles with you at all, please take them out. I know it's a bit hard to read because it's dark, but I promise you it's worth it, because in order for us to actually understand the argument Paul's making and the story he's taken us on, it'd be really helpful for you to have them in front of you. Let's get into it. So as I've already said... Paul has been talking about how the power of God is shown in Jesus. And so now he's turning the argument, he's turning the point over to us. So he starts, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. So we're going to stop there. Because those last two words in that last three words, transgressions and sins, are actually really important. So if you're not really aware of all the jargon that we use in church, that's fine. I'll try and give you a little bit of a a brief summary. Basically, we talk about this thing called sin, which is going against what God has planned for us to do. Thousands of years ago, there was this law that God made so that we can become closer to God, so that we can live good lives, so we can live in love, and so that we can be under God's rule. And so sin is this word that we use to describe when we go against God's will for us. And usually there's a bunch of different words that we we sub in for that word. We have transgressions, we have sins, we have wrongdoings. But here, Paul makes a point of using both the words transgressions and sins. And there's a reason. Well, he actually doesn't, he doesn't speak English, so he uses the words paraptoma and hamartia. Now, these are very important words because they actually kind of mean very different things. We have paraptoma, which is a very voluntary deviation from the law of God. It's an intentional decision to go against what God wants you to do. And then we have hamartia, which is falling short. It's failing to do what God wants you to do. It's not as intentional. It's actually, I would argue, unintentional. And so what Paul is saying here, he is saying that because of our voluntary deviation from the law, and because of our falling short from being able to obey, we were dead. Now, you you could say this is pretty emotive language, to say that we were dead. That's got to be an over-exaggeration, right? You could say that, but you could also say literally, when we are separated from God, we are destined for death. Because God is the creator, he is the sustainer of life. So as soon as we do things that separate us from being with God, then we're living in anything but life. We're living in death. And so put bluntly, what Paul is saying here is because of your deviation from the law, because of your failing to do what is right, you are living in death. You are separated from life. Then in verse 2 he goes on, You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. See here Paul draws two ways that we are living apart from God as people. We're living apart from God by following the world, and we're living apart from God by following the ruler of the kingdom of the air. So we'll start with the world first. I would actually argue that, again, he's, he's talking about this unintentional and intentional deviation from the law. So basically, what I would say about following the world is when you are following the world and you are apathetic towards what God wants you to do. It's when you get caught up in the society around you. It's when you get caught up in the culture. 
and it's when you drift with the rest of the flow of the world. And then we have the other way in which we used to live, which is when we follow the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Now, this ruler has a lot of different names. We have the enemy, we have Satan, we have the devil. And what Paul is saying by calling him the ruler of the kingdom of the air, and in other translations he's called like the prince with power, is that he's saying that there is a spiritual warfare happening in this world. We can't always see it, but it's happening. And it's happening between two forces, God and God's people and the enemy. And what he's saying by this is he's saying that the enemy does actually have power. It's foolish to think that the enemy doesn't have power. And so really, Paul, is, he's, he's pressing in to what it means to be living in death. He's pressing in to what it's like to live without God. And the reason why he talks about this is because he wants to give us a contrast of what it is to live with God. So in, in talking about the power that God has, he's telling us first about the power of the other side, the opposition. And you'd feel like, okay, Paul, that's pretty good. Let's get on to the good stuff now. But no, he keeps going. He says, verse 3, All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So he starts off, all of us. There is not a single person in this room, I'm sorry, there's not a single person in the whole world who is exempt from this. All of us deserve death because of what we do. He says this word, flesh, which is a bit of a gross word, but it's used all throughout the New Testament to describe, well, to encapsulate the sinful state of humanity. And so this word actually in Greek is the word sarx. It's to talk about the sinful state of humanity. And as I said, it's used throughout all the New Testament. And probably one of my favorite uses of it is in Romans chapter 8, verse 5 to 6, where he says, Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. We're talking about a lot of Greek tonight, so I'm sorry. But yeah, you have flesh is sark, spirit is pneuma. It's the contrast between living in sin and living with God. That's what he's getting at. And I think that this passage that I've just read out is really, really fitting for what we're talking about tonight, about how Jesus has brought us out of death and taken us into life. And so Paul concludes this first section of his argument. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at some point, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Paul says that humanity as a whole is deserving of death for three reasons. Because of our voluntary deviation from the law, because of our falling short from being able to obey God, the accidents, the mistakes we make, and because of our very human nature, we deserve death. And this is a really hard question, but I feel like it's something that we need to ask of ourselves. Is there anything that is currently separating you from God? Is there addiction? Is there pride? Is there greed in your lives? Maybe it's the need to appease other people's expectations. Is there something that is going against what God wants for you in your life? I want to do a little game. We're going to do a little bit of a word association right now, okay? So I'm going to start saying a sentence, and if you know what the rest of the sentence is, I want you to yell it out. If you don't know the rest of the sentence, that's fine. I just hope that at least one of you will be able to. Otherwise, this will not work. So let's go with the first one. For the wages of sin is... 
Ah, beautiful. That was great. Well, kind of. That was fantastic. Thank you. All right, we have another one. Is for all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. That's perfect. And these are really fantastic verses that I learned in youth group. And they're fantastic because they tell us about the consequences of our sin. They tell us about the consequences of living in death. The wages of sin is death. All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. But what happens so often is that we just stick to that first part of the sentence. Whereas both of these sentences actually have conjunctions. And that's a but and an and. It goes, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace. The story doesn't end there with everyone living in death. And you might have noticed that everything's in the past tense. You see, Paul is talking to the church. He's saying, as for you, you were dead, in which you used to live. All of us also lived among those people. You see, the story doesn't end there. So I'm going to read this again, but it's going to be a little bit different this time. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. Because of what God has done for us, we are made alive in Christ. It's not up to us or the good works that we do. It's completely up to Christ. It's, it's because of his great love for us, his kindness, his mercy, his grace, and this gift that he's given us that we are redeemed from death and we're called alive. And so now we're out of that first part of this passage, which is talking, it's a real downer, it's talking about the sinful state of humanity, how we all deserve death. And it's a really sobering thought, but now Paul is shifting gears and he's coming into this second part, which is my favourite part of the passage. And I'm going to tell you why it should be your favourite part of the passage too. This part isn't as easy to go through verse by verse, so we'll kind of just smash through it because it really just keeps running and running and running as God talks more and more about this thing called grace. So verse 4 and 5 says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. It's pretty exciting because verse 5, right at the end, it says we were dead in transgressions. That's exciting to me because that's actually a repetition from verse 1 when he says, as you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And that's exciting because if you think about it, when people were writing these letters back in the old days, they were expensive paper they were writing on and they were physically writing. They weren't just typing it, so there was no copy and paste. And so when they repeat themselves, what they're saying is this is important. You need to understand this. It's not just a filler. It's not just because they were bored. It's not because they didn't have anything else to say. He is saying this twice because he's like, you need to know this. Because of your transgressions, you are dead. And then he doesn't leave it there, though, because he goes on. He says, you are dead in your transgressions, but it is by grace that you have been saved. And what's also exciting is that in verse 8, he repeats that last bit as well. He says, it is by grace you've been saved again, because it is just, if not more important, that you know that you have been saved by grace. 
And then he goes on, he doesn't leave it there. He says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul is continuing on with talking about the power of God here. He's continuing on. See, in verse 6, that's actually another repetition. It's a lot of repetition. It's like English class. It's another repetition from the chapter beforehand. In verse 20, he says, he talks about how God raised Jesus up from death and placed him in the heavenly realms with God. And so now he's saying that not only has he done that with Jesus, God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. No longer are we stuck in the darkness of death. Instead, we're raised out of there and we're placed in the heavenly realms next to Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. See, remember before when I talked about how Paul mentions the power of the enemy. And he mentions the power of the enemy so that we can get a picture of the power of God in comparison to it. This comparison is so important because he says, yeah, this is the power of the enemy. And this is the power of God that is actually so powerful that it's incomparable to the power of the enemy. And so already you're getting this picture of, hang on a second, it's not really a fair fight, is it? Because God is way more powerful than the other side. And again, he doesn't leave it there. He keeps going. For it is by grace you have been saved. As I've already said, that's repeated again. Through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This is what I really want to get at. The gift of God. I talked before about the drum kit that was amazing, out of the love in the hearts of my parents. And this is exactly what God has done for us. We have been given this totally undeserved gift. We haven't earned it by works. We haven't earned it by who we are. If anything, it's who we are that makes the gift necessary for us. And I think that's just something that we need to, we need to sit on. We need, to, we need to think about how great is that love? How great is that love that God has given us? That when we didn't even deserve it, we didn't do anything to earn it, he gave us this grace. That's got to put a smile on your face, surely. But I've got to admit, I'm guilty of thinking that I need to earn that grace. And maybe some of you can resonate with me. I'm guilty of knowing of this grace. I've been in church my whole life. I've known about this grace that God's given us for so long. But there's always just a small part of me that's tugging, that's wanting to earn it. And maybe that's because of the culture we live in where you have to earn things, where you have to gain things, and you find your identity in all that you have. But I don't know. There's just a part, a small part of me that is always wanting to have to earn that grace. But right here, Paul shuts that down. He says it's not by works, so that no one can boast. Instead, it's the gift of God that he's given us, and that's grace. And so that's almost the whole passage there, the last verse. I just want you to see that, how that comparison, how God has redeemed us from being dead and has brought us into new life. And this reminds me of a story. It's in John chapter 11. It's about a guy called Lazarus, and Lazarus is dead. And so Jesus, he's like, all right, I'll go over and help you guys. And the sister's just like, no, it's too smelly in there. He's been dead for a while. Like, don't worry about it. And then Jesus is like, no, 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 move, remove the rock in front of the tomb. And so they do. And then he says, hey, Lazarus, get up, come out. And Lazarus does. Jesus is pretty good. And that's a whole sermon in itself. So you can wait for that when that comes eventually. But this is exactly what God does for us. He redeems us from death, and he brings us into new life. And what I like about this story is that Lazarus comes straight out. Lazarus doesn't stay in the tomb. He doesn't go, yeah, yeah, Jesus, just hang on a second. I just really like the the, um, interior design in this tomb. 
I really like the smell. Uh, it's pretty gross, but I just want to soak it in for a bit longer. He doesn't go, yeah, no, it's really dark in here. I just want to hang out for here a bit longer. He goes straight out of that tomb. What I want to ask you guys is, when Jesus brings you out of death, do you go straight out of that tomb? Or is there something that's holding you back? And I'm not saying that there's something that's holding everyone back, because there are some people, there's a lot of people, who really know what it means to walk out of that tomb, to walk out of death into new life, and that is incredible. And so when I ask that question, I so want you to experience that for yourself. So ask yourself, is there something that is stopping you from walking out of that tomb? Is there something that is stopping you from enjoying the life that God has given you? Grace is there. The gift has been given. So take it. And so then the fundamental question becomes, if we are saved completely by grace and by the power of God, and it's got nothing to do with our good works or who we are, then what now? Do we just keep living easy breezy, not really a care in the world? Do we keep sinning so that grace might increase? No, not at all. Of course not. Because Paul doesn't finish there. He goes into verse 10. He says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Our good works shouldn't be a means of gaining favour of God or salvation from God. God has already given us his gift, that is life. It's instead out of this life, out of being centred in Christ Jesus, out of being created in Christ Jesus, that we should live. And so what we do is an overflow of what God has done and is currently doing in us. And so I have another question for you guys, because I'm all about the questions. What does it look like for you to be created in Christ Jesus? How is that different from the life you once lived? What is the difference between living in that tomb and what is the difference between walking out of that tomb into new life? I'm talking about a great God here. That's why on the board it says great God, because I'm talking about a great God, the creator of the world, the one with all power, who holds everything in his hands. He is awesome. He is wonderful. I'm talking about a great God who loves us. We don't deserve this love that is given to us, and yet he still stretches out his hand to give it to us. In fact, the Bible says that he loves us as if we were his children. It's Mother's Day. You love your mums. Your mums love you. Imagine that love times 50 billion. That's not even close to the amount that God loves you. Not only does God love us, he gives us this gift, a totally undeserved gift of grace, of redemption from death to life. And that gives me to a new point. He gives us new life so that we can be created in Christ Jesus. God has done all these things for us, and so you wonder, what's our job? What's our responsibility if God's already done it all? And I would argue that our job is to respond. It's in this love, this gift, and this new life that God has given us, and it's our job to respond to that. So I want to leave you with one question. I want you to actually think about this one. If God has given us this love, this gift, and this new life, then what is your response? Let's pray. God, thank you so much. That's all I can say. Thank you for this undeserved gift that you've given us. Thank you for this love. Thank you for this new life. Thank you that we no longer have to be dead in our transgressions and our sins, but instead we are redeemed. Instead we are given life, and instead we can live in that life that you've given us. 
I pray that our faith won't become about doing good works. It won't become about trying to be a good person, but instead our faith will become about trying to live the way that you have called us to. Lord, I pray that you would speak to every single one of us tonight, and if not at least one of us, I pray that your will would be done in this place, and I pray that you would be glorified. Amen.